Presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Amy Littlefield, the Nation Magazine's abortion access correspondent, who examines the consequences of the Supreme Court's ruling one year ago that ended women's constitutional right to obtain safe legal abortions. Shelley Altman of the group Jewish Voice for Peace, who talks about U.S. opposition to the extremist Israeli government's push to build thousands of new illegal settlements in the occupied Palestinian West Bank. And investigative reporter Greg Palast, who discusses the latest ethics scandal surrounding Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito involving billionaire Paul Singer and links to Alito's deciding vote in gutting the Voting Rights Act. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Leftist Colombian President Gustavo Petro is pressing ahead on his pledge to make peace with armed rebel groups. Early on, he signed a series of ceasefire agreements, some of which collapsed. In early June, in Havana, Cuba, Petro announced a six-month ceasefire with the National Liberation Army, or ELN, his nation's largest remaining rebel group that will begin on August 3rd. Petro, elected in 2022 on a promise to make peace with rebels and end the war on drugs, won his highest level of support in Colombia's rural conflict zones. Colombia has been engaged in a nearly six-decade-long civil conflict with government forces, paramilitary groups, left-wing rebels, and criminal networks all jostling for power. A turning point came in 2016 when the government of then-President Juan Manuel Santos signed peace accords with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC, the largest rebel group at the time. Petro's ceasefire agreement with the ELN will be monitored by both the United Nations and Colombia's Catholic Church. Advocates for children are worried that government support for child care providers initiated during the COVID pandemic could be lost if funding is allowed to expire. In March 2021, Congress approved the American Rescue Plan that allocated $52 billion in block grants to child care agencies to deal with a severe labor shortage in the nation's daycare centers. The American Prospect reports that $37 billion in child care funding is expected to expire in September, which will create a serious funding gap in the child care sector, vital to the nation's future economic growth. A report from Democratic Senators Bernie Sanders and Patty Murray found that government investments since 2021 have kept daycare operators afloat. Without more federal funding, child care activists fear thousands of child care centers will be forced to close. The closures could result in $9 billion in lost wages. The impact would disproportionately fall on black women as well as their children, who would face economic instability. Chicago's incoming progressive mayor, Brandon Johnson, wants to broaden and deepen his city's green agenda. 
In his election campaign, Johnson, a former union organizer, laid out a strong environmental justice agenda based on a Green New Deal for housing, education, clean air, and clean water. For Johnson, this means replacing lead water pipes, retrofitting buildings, installing solar, electrifying transit, and more. In the process, Johnson said his administration would create union or prevailing wage jobs, employ people from marginalized frontline communities, and prepare young people for advanced clean energy careers. Chicago's green programs could be funded by Illinois' new state energy law and the Federal Inflation Reduction Act, both which prioritize environmental justice and funding for clean energy and sustainability investments. As In These Times reports, Johnson will first have to overcome the influence wielded by polluting industries' campaign contributions to city council members that have made it difficult to pass environmental and health ordinances to protect urban neighborhoods. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. June 24th marked the one-year anniversary of the Supreme Court's extremist majority's vote to overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling that established federal protections for women's reproductive rights that stood for nearly 50 years. As pro-choice and anti-abortion activists gathered in Washington, D.C. on the last weekend in June to both celebrate and protest the decision, 25 million women in the U.S., now live in states with total abortion bans or tighter restrictions. Over the past year, some Republican-controlled states have passed new laws criminalizing abortion, with some specifically targeting anyone who assists pregnant people in obtaining an abortion in other states. A recent survey conducted by the Kaiser Family Foundation found that 68% of OBGYN physicians said the Supreme Court's overturning Roe v. Wade has made the management of pregnancy-related medical emergencies worse. 64% said the ruling has increased pregnancy-related mortality, and 70% believe the ruling exacerbated racial and ethnic inequities in maternal health. At the same time, a new national poll on abortion, conducted by NBC News, found that 61% of all registered voters disapprove of the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade that includes nearly 8 in 10 female voters ages 18 to 49, two-thirds of suburban women, 60% of independents, and one-third of Republican voters. Your reporter spoke with Amy Littlefield, the Nation magazine's abortion access correspondent, who talks about the consequences of the High Court's ruling one year ago that ended women's constitutional right to obtain safe, legal abortions. So it's important to know today is that 13 states currently have bans in place on abortion, and 14, if you count Wisconsin, where there's a pre-Roe ban that abortion providers have been forced to abide by because of the ambiguity of, of the landscape there. 
most of those states, 10 of them, are all clustered together in a row across the Deep South, starting in Texas and moving eastward, right? And we're seeing an increasing number of states. Of course, you know, Ron DeSantis famously assigned a six-week ban um, that's looming potentially in Florida, states like North Carolina, states that were considered safe and that were a haven for, for people in the South that are now really under threat. And then, you know, on the flip side, of course, we see that states like New York, California, Connecticut are enacting historic protections on abortion access. Abortion is more accessible, more funded, more supported in some of these blue progressive states than it ever has been before. And in fact, National Institute for Reproductive Health put out a report more than $200 million has been spent to support abortion and, and contraception and reproductive health care access in the years of Dobbs at the state and municipal level. So it is really hard to characterize the landscape in any way other to, than to say it depends on where you live, who you are, how much money you have um, to travel. Amy, I did want to talk about the doctors, the hesitance of many of these doctors to take any risks. We have heard stories about miscarriages where women are led to believe that they must bleed out before they can get an abortion for a fetus that is either compromised or even has passed away, leaving the pregnant woman to be exposed to possible infection through sepsis or even death. Tell us about the consequences of these anti-abortion laws that are not only affecting those women who seek abortions, but for women who are yearning for a successful pregnancy but run into problems. Absolutely. I mean, Scott, it feels like almost every day now we're seeing a new news story about a heartbreaking experience of someone with a wanted pregnancy who has suffered a miscarriage or a devastating fetal anomaly and has needed to end that pregnancy either to save her own life or because it is the most humane thing to do um, for her family and where that person is denied care um, when they go to a hospital um, or see their doctor. Stories that stick with me include some of the plaintiffs in the, in the lawsuit filed out of Texas by the Center for Reproductive Rights, you know, Amanda Zorowski, who got so sick as a result of being denied care when she was going through a pregnancy loss that she was in the ICU and her family had to gather around by her side because they thought she was going to die. Um, I mean, these are the stories that we're hearing. We're not hearing, you know, the stories of people who perhaps have died for people who do not have the same access to, you know, speak with the media or lawyers um, as some of these plaintiffs. You know, I do think doctors are being placed in an incredibly challenging position here. In many of these states, like Texas, the anti-abortion laws are being layered on top of, you know, abortion stigma. They're being layered on top of existing religious restrictions if it's a Catholic or, you know, Christian hospital. So there's an enormous amount of confusion, and no one has really been able to lay out clearly for them exactly how they're supposed to interpret that law. Um, I think, unfortunately, what's happening in a lot of these states like Texas is that OBGYNs are finding that they are in an impossible position where they can't provide the standard of care to their patients because of these bans, and a lot of them are leaving. Um, and that's going to leave care deserts in places that already have high rates of maternal mortality, especially for, for black women and people of color. Pro-choice activists have been very successful at uh, statewide referendums just this past November in the midterm elections. Tell us a little bit about the success they had. It was surprising to many that uh, deeply red or conservative states, by substantial numbers, passed these referendums that blocked making abortions illegal in those states. What's the hope for the future 
uh, on the route of referendums? I think that abortion rights groups really see ballot initiatives as their most promising tactic to restore abortion access in some of these red states. Um, With the huge caveat that the process is different everywhere and that in a lot of these Republican gerrymandered states, the state legislatures have tried to make it more difficult for these measures to actually pass. And we're seeing that in Ohio right now. Republicans are just trying to make it more difficult to pass a ballot initiative in response to the fact that activists there are trying to put abortion on the ballot. And doctors, I should say, not all of them are activists. This is a place where a lot of doctors have gotten involved um, as well in trying to, to change the law in their favor. So I think we're going to see a lot more ballot initiatives on abortion rights. I mean, I was there in Kansas last summer right after the Dobbs decision in August when they had a special election where this anti-abortion measure was expected to pass in deep ruby red Kansas, and it was defeated. And the momentum there was enormous. The energy was huge. I felt like I was really seeing what happens when the pro-choice majority finds its voice and gets mobilized. And then, of course, we saw the same thing happen in Kentucky, in California, in Vermont. And so with six ballot initiatives all going towards the the pro-choice side, I think there's enormous momentum in Democrats. Um, are finally catching on to the fact that abortion is a winning issue. And so I think we're going to see, you know, Ohio is working on it, South Dakota, Missouri, Florida, and beyond states where we're going to see abortion on the ballot. And that being sort of the place where a lot of state organizing and momentum and energy is building. That was Amy Littlefield, The Nation magazine's abortion access correspondent. Find a link to her recent Nation cover story titled The Message They've Received is That You Don't Deserve to Be Cared For, Life on the Abortion Borderland, and other commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In recent weeks, Israel has carried out its most violent attacks on Palestinians living in the West Bank since the Second Intifada, or uprising, that ended 20 years ago. Palestinians have also attacked Israeli settlers and residents of Israel proper. In the escalating violence, 170 Palestinians, including 26 children, and 19 Israelis have been reported killed so far in 2023. Earlier this year, Israel approved construction of more than 7,000 new housing units for settlers in the West Bank that will increase the Israeli population in the occupied territory above half a million. These settlements are considered illegal under international law, and undermine the two-state solution that successive U.S. presidential administrations have long claimed to support. According to the Israel-based group Peace Now, the Israeli government is now pushing at an unprecedented pace towards the full annexation of the Palestinian West Bank. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Shelley Altman, chairperson of the New Haven, Connecticut chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace, which has 400,000 members across the U.S., Here he discusses the latest actions of the most extreme right-wing government in Israel's history and what Jewish and other supporters of Palestine in the U.S. are doing to oppose Israel's expansionist policy. There are really three important things that I think have to be noted. The first is that Israelis elected this leadership. The leadership is not, you know, the result of a coup or anything like that. Israelis elected this leadership in an election last November. Uh, the second is that here in the United States, every time that Israel does something that people are upset about, our government, whether it's the administration or members of Congress or other people in le- uh, leadership positions, they express concern. 
They express deep concern. They say they're deeply troubled. This week, Antony Blinken, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, said that the settlement decision was an obstacle to the horizon of hope, but that we still have an ironclad uh, relationship with Israel, and we will have that forever. And so this sets the stage for settlement expansion and for impunity in the face of the concern and the condemnation. Nothing is ever done here in the United States to, to present any consequences for Israel's actions. So there's a couple of things that, that happen. One is the settlements tend to be positioned in a way to further fragment the land in the, in the West Bank so that it's harder and harder for Palestinians in the West Bank to get from one place to another. With regard to your question about Palestinian state or however that played out, it makes it more and more impossible for that to happen because uh, the settlements are just completely dividing up any kind of uh, territory that Palestinians would be able to have as, as part of a state or part of whatever political entity that was agreed to. Shelley Altman, what is Jewish Voice for Peace doing uh, in regarding addressing all these ongoing crises? We have JVP Action, which is the, pol the political side of, of Jewish Voice for Peace, had meetings in Congress with, with members of Congress or with their aides uh, earlier this month. And the first thing you hear is Iran, that there's no interest in, in solving the problems between Israel and Palestine with uh, addressing the human rights violations, with addressing the land grabs, with addressing the home demolitions, with addressing any of that. The interest is in manipulating the political situation in the Middle East so that Iran does not get more power than it already has in the Middle East. And if making a deal with the egregious human rights violator, such as Saudi Arabia, that's okay. You know, that's okay to make Israel happy, to sell arms, and to uh, shut down Iran. There, there are several pieces of legislation that we spoke to our members of Congress and their aides about. One of them is H.R. 3103, which is a Betty McCollum-sponsored bill to basically assure that any aid that we give to Israel is not used for abuse of children through arrests and detentions. Uh, the second piece is to uh, not allow those funds to be used for home demolitions or destruction of homes uh, for Palestinian families. And the third is to not allow those funds to be used for annexation. And the chances of that legislation you know, passing and getting signed by the president are, are, are zero, uh, at least in this Congress. But the intention is to uh, build up a base of support for consequences and for promoting human rights and for making people aware in our government of what's going on and, and how we need to take steps to, to say, no, this is not what we are and this is not what we are going to support. Well, one other thing I do want to say, and this sort of gets back to a little bit to impunity, is that you've probably heard of the, the Israeli finance minister whose name is Bezalel Smotrich. Uh, and he's the finance minister, but he's also in charge of civil administration in the West Bank. He's the man who called for the town of Huara to be erased from the map when settlers invaded it uh, earlier this year in March. He has refused to call the settler pogroms in the Palestinian towns terror. He's argued that, that basically they're, they're brothers and they're fighting the, the common enemy, namely Palestine. And basically, Israel has just changed the way that they do the settlements so that it used to be that the power over the settlements was with the Israeli military because it's a military occupation. But that's now been changed so that the power is, was, is basically controlled by civilian, by the civilian administration, which is Smotrich, whose stated intent 
is to remove all the Palestinians. That was Shelley Altman, chair of the New Haven, Connecticut chapter of the national group Jewish Voice for Peace. Learn more about the root causes of the escalating violence in Israel-Palestine and the work of Jewish Voice for Peace by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. After weeks of news reports revealing a series of ethics scandals surrounding U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas for his acceptance of extravagant gifts from conservative billionaire Harlan Crow, the Pulitzer Prize-winning online news site ProPublica has uncovered more apparent ethics violations, this time by Justice Samuel Alito. ProPublica reports that in 2008, Justice Alito accepted a seat in a private plane owned by Republican megadonor Paul Singer, which flew him to Alaska for a luxury fishing trip, hosted by another right-wing businessman. Alito failed to declare such gifts or recuse himself when Singer had business before the court. Thus far, Chief Justice John Roberts has resisted calls to institute ethics rules for the Supreme Court or testify in Congress about the Thomas Crow affair. Your reporter spoke with investigative journalist Greg Pallast, New York Times best-selling author of The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. Here, Pallast, who's investigated hedge fund billionaire Paul Singer's ruthless financial schemes that have brought misery to millions in the Congo, Argentina, and Peru, talks about how Alito was the Supreme Court's deciding vote that gutted the 1965 Voting Rights Act, an outcome in which Singer had invested millions of his fortune. Paul Singer, let's say who he is. Okay, he's known as the, the vulture. I, while I've given him the name the vulture, everyone uses it. I've been hunting this guy since 2007 for BBC television. I've literally tracked him from Africa to Asia to Latin America uh, to Detroit, Michigan, one of the third world countries he's attacked. He's known as the vulture. He runs a, a vulture fund. It's called a vulture fund. That I didn't make up. It's actually called a vulture fund whose job is to take dying companies, dying nations, and by the way, dying people. He's kind of like a, a repo man who takes old debts and then uh, does whatever it takes. Well, I mean, whatever it takes. Um, in most cases, his activities are illegal. Whatever it takes to collect basically a pound of flesh from uh, his victims. 2008, we find out uh, that he, was, uh, he has a couple private jets, a couple of them, and he takes politicians, judges, you name it, for free rides. You know, a seat on a private jet from New York to Alaska is about $100,000, usually, given free to Alito. I love Alito's line that if he didn't take it, the seat would have been empty. One, I'm very disappointed in ProPublica, for one thing, for only looking at one single case. And they said, well, and Alito made the point. Okay, there was one case in which he was directly named as a plaintiff that the court ruled on in 2000, and just a couple of years after uh, the, the, the trip where Singer went with Alito, Justice Alito, also the head of the Federal Society. That's very important because if you're a judge and there's a Republican administration, 
you basically have to be approved by the Federalist Society. So if you're a judge, you're looking at this. You want to move up to the Supreme Court. You see Singer and the, the uh, head of the Federalist Society and the Supreme Court justice with this vulture. You're going to pleasure this vulture because he's the guy who can give you a judgeship. He's like the new Roy Cohn picking our judges for us. That's mm-hmm. very important. But he voted in a case where, I mean, I don't think that they found a legal scholar yet who said that he shouldn't have recused himself, removed himself from a case. So that's the immediate ProPublica story. That's only the beginning of the way this guy's operating. The most important case to me, Scott, frankly, is that it was Singer who pushed the case Shelby v. Holder. Singer's the big money and the power behind the Manhattan Institute. And they ran and funded with the Koch brothers. So Singer and the Koch brothers hand-in-hand. They often work in coordination. Singer's far more right-wing than the Koch brothers, I should note. Singer through the Manhattan Institute pushed Shelby v. Holder. Now, that uh, to, actually, yesterday happened to be the 10th anniversary of Shelby v. Holder. And that's the case that basically gutted the Voting Rights Act. And that was Paul Singer, and that was a 5-4 vote. What they said about the Argentina vote, yeah, maybe Alito shouldn't have been on that case, but it was a 7-1 to decision. Well, that's only a minor case that he was involved with. Shelby v. Holder, which has entirely changed our political landscape, making it much, much more difficult for people of color to vote. Much more difficult. And that was a 5-4 decision. Alito should not have been on that. Greg, public confidence in the U.S. Supreme Court is at its lowest since 1973. And this follows a, a string of revelations about Justice Clarence Thomas and the lavish trips and gifts that he's received from other billionaires. Tell us a a bit about, from your perspective here, what should the American people conclude from all this money or gifts changing hands between the wealthiest people in the country and the Supreme Court justices? People still think of the Supreme Court as these wise, you know, you watch TV, you know, judges in their wise robes, and they're always judicious. The Supreme Court, it's already been decaying. Uh, I should note that Paul Singer also gave free rides, these free um, $100,000 seat uh, hunting trips to um, Justice Scalia before then. You know, where, and there are a lot of 5-4 decisions for, you know, on creating, remember, we didn't have, until Scalia was on the court, we didn't have the Second Amendment was never, never, ever in court's history interpreted the right to own a gun, personally. There was never a right to own guns in the Constitution, never recognized by the court. And Scalia had pulled that off on a 5-4 decision. He was also pleasured by Singer. So you have basically our Supreme Court of our land, our final arbiter on the Constitution, has been corrupted. And it's getting more corrupt and more ideologic and less judicious. So it's been a decayed court for a long time. People are just waking up to it. That was investigative journalist Greg Pallast. New York Times best-selling author of The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. Palace's new award-winning film, Vigilante, George's Vote Suppression Hitman, will premiere next year. Find links to Palace articles on hedge fund billionaire Paul Singer by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. been 
listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, KGNU in Boulder, Colorado, KRFP in Moscow, Idaho, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.